Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome back to Adat H12. This week, I'm joined by Alyssa Sepinwall. And we're going to talk about the Haitian Revolution and the San Domingo uprising. And of course, Tosal will be a, a part of the focus in this episode. And she has, Alisa has written Slave Revolt on Screen, the Haitian Revolution in Film and Video Games, and Haitian History New Perspective. But I want to begin always to get to know the historian a little bit. So, because I would say that this is kind of a little bit hidden history. That's yes. not one people may be familiar with. So how do you come across this and study the Haitian or San Domingo uprising? So I was trained as a French historian, um, and I entered graduate school in 1992. There had just been the bicentennial of the French Revolution in 1989. And interestingly, all of the books that came out that year, almost none mentioned, bothered to mention the fact that France had been a slaveholding country. That while people in Paris and in metropolitan France were declaring liberty, equality, and fraternity, that there were Caribbean colonies where people were still enslaved. Um, so it started to bubble up a little, and I started to work on this in my dissertation. I was interested in how the French Revolution had treated oppressed groups, groups that had been oppressed under the old regime, which included Jews in France Um, and included women who ended up being excluded from citizenship. And I looked at enslaved people and also free people of color in Saint-Domingue, which was the French name for colonial Haiti. Um, so in my first book, which grew out of my um, doctoral dissertation, I did a study of the French revolutionary uh, Catholic priest, Abbé Grégoire, and he argued for freeing enslaved people It's a little more complicated than that, but he eventually argued for it. And so people in Haiti viewed him as their only European friend. They appreciated that he was criticizing racism and arguing that they could be free. So that was kind of the first step in my studying Haiti. And as you said, it's a topic a lot of people don't know about. Um, it's become mm -hmm. certainly in the United States and a little more in France, more well known, I'd say, in the last 20 years, um, but definitely, um, yeah, it was something that when I was studying in the 1990s, a lot of scholars were not looking at when they studied the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. So it starts from being a French revolutionary historian and then moving to Haiti. Because I do think this really should get a lot more attention than it has, mm -hmm. because this is, this is, I believe, one of the only, there has been other slave revolts, but this is yes. the successful slave revolt, yes. at least I am familiar with it, hasn't it? Yes, and to lead in the founding of an independent country. Um, but the thing is that precisely because it was successful, all of the other slaveholding countries at the time, which included France, 
and Spain and England and the United States, they were determined that Haiti should not be a success because they thought that would inspire enslaved people in their countries to think, oh, we can rise up and kill our masters and mistresses and then people will be okay with it. So there was a real effort uh, even after, so the Haitian Revolution started in 1791. I know we'll talk about this more in a moment, but independence was declared in Haiti in 1804. And afterwards, there was largely an effort by other countries to try to ensure that they wouldn't be successful so that enslaved people in other places would not want to try to copy it. Which is, I do believe, and I'm sure we'll get that case as well, because in Cuba, I need to turn to reading mm-hmm. Ada Ferrer's book biography on Cuba, and they've been talking about how the Haitian Revolution as well inspired that, mm-hmm. and again, it's failed. So mm-hmm. there was a revolution inspired by Toussaint and his crew mm-hmm. in Cuba as well. But let's yeah. begin, let, let us begin back in a little background on Haitia, or like if you're going to call it by the historical correct at the time, San Domingo, or for a little bit background of colonial history before the revolution, I talked a little mm-hmm. bit about the, the class system and, of course, the racial issues that arose at San Domingo. Sure. So um, the Caribbean was um, the first place that Christopher Columbus landed. He actually um, landed in the Bahamas and then in northern Haiti, what the Spanish called Hispaniola, Little Spain. Um, And so the Spanish uh, conquered, killed um, Native people that they encountered, the Native Taino people. And then they sought to enslave them to mine gold or silver or other things. But Unfortunately, as part of what scholars call the Columbian Exchange, which was two populations that had not come into contact before, there ended up um, being a lot of diseases that they introduced to each other. And Native people on Hispaniola and elsewhere in the Americas were almost entirely wiped out, again, through a combination of violence and getting smallpox, which the Europeans were carrying. So the Native Taino population in Haiti Um, again, uh, was virtually wiped out um, by the middle of the 16th century, by 50 years after um, Columbus's um, forces had first landed there. Um, And the Spanish decided that they wanted, I always have to say decided, because sometimes people talk about the slave trade as if it was necessary. Um, And so the drug dealers who are here, they don't need to sell drugs. They want to and they want to get wealthy from doing something harmful. But the Spanish decide they're going to set up sugar plantations, but they don't have Native people largely anymore. And I I should just say also that um, we have records. It's not my specialty because I work on French and Haitian history and not Spanish and Haitian history, but there were definitely revolts by the Taino people against the Spanish. Um, But the Spanish decide that they're going to start growing sugar and they start importing um, Africans to the new world. Um, However, the Spanish did not only colonize Hispaniola, right? We know they're in Mexico. We know they're in Cuba. We know that they're in Peru. And they end up not focusing so much on the island that they called Hispaniola or Santo Domingo. 
Um, and by the 17th century, the French, French pirates, start sneaking up on the western side and surreptitiously colonizing it, even if it wasn't acknowledged. Um, and the fact that the French are starting to occupy the western part of the island gets recognized finally um, by both the British and the Spanish by the end of the 17th century, and then they formally recognize it in 1777 um, in the Treaty of Aranjuez. Um, and the French end up doing much more on the island than the Spanish in terms of setting up plantations um, and importing people to be enslaved um, because they don't have all of these other possessions, which is one reason when people look at why earthquakes affect people in Haiti more than in the Dominican Republic, it's because there was much more clear cutting of forests. That's one reason. Um, so the French. Mind, mind if I ask whether frequent earthquake as well, like in those days, or whether not so there were There were some, yes. Um, so yeah, we have records of earthquakes, I think 1844 in Cap Aicien, but in the 18th century also. Um, but certainly, uh, it's gotten worse today when they happen. Um, also because of the overpopulation in Port-au-Prince, but this is another story. So, um, almost a million people were kidnapped and enslaved and brought to the new world, um, from, um, Africa to be enslaved in Saint-Domingue, and the numbers were such that there were essentially 12 enslaved people for every white colonist. Mm -hmm. Now, you can imagine with that kind of imbalance, right, the numbers would be against the white colonists, except that they brutalize um, and torture and traumatize people, and any small sign of uh, resistance was met brutally with Torture, public torture, killing people. So this system continues. Um, but we know still that enslaved people, despite this threat, there were a variety of ways that they resisted. Sometimes there were poisonings um, of, of uh, enslavers. Um, sometimes there were actual revolts, although it was harder to get weapons. That was one thing that um, the French had a monopoly over. Um, but things like suicide. I tell my students... When the only form of resistance that you have is suicide, that tells you that you don't have a lot of options. Mm -hmm. um, but infanticide, trying to save children from being born into the system. Um, but still, because the French had so many plantations, this was the wealthiest colony in the New World, wealthier than the 13 colonies. So I'll stop there for a moment. Mm. So let, let us talk about, uh, because of course, as there were sexual relations as well between mm -hmm. the white population and the black population of Haiti. And then we get, the, at the time, of course, you're not going to use the term, but to, to, just to what it would call at the time, and that was it's mulattoes or mixed race yeah. population. So let's talk a little bit about the hierarchy, because there were a hierarchy between slaves, mm -hmm. the mixed race, and the white population as well. So let's yeah. talk about so how this developed. Say, yeah. First, I believe in you calling things their name, which is something that increasingly scholars have been doing. So we're talking largely about rape. Sometimes it's not. Uh, you had free women of color who, uh, to gain money or other things from enslavers, they uh, engaged in sex work. But otherwise, you had um, enslaved women who really had no choice. So sometimes... Um, I will see scholars talking about 
oh, they, they had a very happy relationship and there's no basis to know that because enslaved women knew that if they said no, that there were horrible things that could happen to them. But yes, largely as a result of rapes, we have a new class of people who are born, who are the people of mixed race. Um, and one thing I like to, so when I'm talking to my students about hierarchy in Saint-Domingue, there are really two ways to think about it. We've got skin color and we've got legal condition. So legal condition, we have white colonists, we have free people of color, and we have enslaved people. And free people of color could be 100% African or they could be mixed. The thing is that among the free people of color, there were more mixed people. And that is because who is going to be manumitted, freed by enslaved people? More often, it was a child. Um, so there just ended up being more free people of color. But I, I will say that also... Um, you have marriages. It starts to get outlawed in the 18th century because the French are trying to enforce a strict color line. Um, and I'll say in the 1760s, actually, there were free people of color um, who had similar rights. So, um, for instance, Julien Raymond is one of the most famous mixed people who gets involved in the French Revolution and then the Haitian Revolution. His father was white. And his mother was born a free woman of color. And they were able to get married um, at the time that they got married. Um, but later, this is going to be outlawed because the French decide that they don't want to try to encourage this. They're trying to enforce racial superiority and the idea that a white person and a person of color should get married is shocking. So this is something certainly that enslavers are having sex or, or raping women, but they're not supposed to be doing it freely and it's not supposed to get sanctified by the church. Okay, but I was saying that they're trying to enforce racial hierarchy. Um, and oh, the 1760s, that's what I was saying. There come a whole bunch of laws that are kind of like the Jim Crow laws in the United States that start to make rules. No person of color can sit and eat with a white person, even if they're both free. A free person of color has to stop and salute um, a white person if they pass them in the street. And so this is going to make the free people of color on the island, the ones who are not enslaved, um, they're going to have grievances also um, because, right, I started with colonists, free people of color and enslaved people. Um, they, even if they're free, they are not equal to whites by the time uh, that the Haitian Revolution starts. Were there hierarchy between the black population also? Because I know that in, at least in the United States, in the yes. southern part, if you were a house slave, you had your highest status in the slave, so quote-unquote, for lack of better words, community yeah. than a yeah. field slave. But where was a similar hierarchical in the Saddleman as well? Yes, in the, in, in the sense that working in the the plantation home might be less brutal than cutting sugar. Cutting sugar is really horrible. The cane gets in your skin. It's backbreaking work. So being in the home might be better. On the other hand, again, if you think about the fact 
that uh, enslaved women working in a home might be the favorites and might be subject to rape more often. It's kind of a trade-off, right, with someone who uh, might be working in the fields and be freer. So that is definitely an issue. But some of the kind of hierarchies you have, uh, the people who are born into slavery are referred to as Creoles, um, born in the New World, and enslaved people who are born in Africa and taken to the New World are called Bosal. And if you think about it, and in terms of trauma, um, Bosal had been born free. So they could imagine a world that they knew that this was um, crazy. When I'm with my students, I curse a little more. <laughs> so we mm. say effed up. They had been born in another system in which they were free, and they knew that they were living in some kind of monstrous world. But they also were traumatized by all of the loss and grief that they had had. And mm. they're having to adjust to another language that's being shouted at them, which is not their native language. Creole enslaved people, on the other hand, had been born into the system. So in some sense, while it was traumatic, they didn't know this other world. Um, and they also grew up speaking Creole or French. Um, so there are definitely some um, divisions between them. And we'll see those later in the Haitian Revolution. So let me say distinctions rather than divisions. It's not necessarily that they're divided. They just have had some different experiences. Mm. So, of course, I want to introduce our main, arguably main character in this story, which is, and do forgive me because my French is horrible. I'm probably not going to say his name right, but that's his Toussaint de Vature. And yes, of course, how, what is his background and how did he become, like you said, the main cause for this revolution that would later be the success so, that it was? Toussaint was an enslaved person um, born in the colony. Um, his father had been uh, an official in uh, West Africa, in the area that's Benin now. Um, and he was born in the New World. He was enslaved on a plantation called Breda. Um, and he ends up at first, that's his last name, Toussaint Breda. And he was clever. He ended up being a very skillful horseman. So he had a, when we're talking about hierarchy, he had a relatively privileged position on his plantation. And he ends up being able to learn how to read, even though this is forbidden. This is something that could be punishable by death because enslavers didn't want enslaved people to read the Bible about equality or other books that might uh, influence them to challenge their condition. Um, so he ends up becoming free even before the revolution. Um, and then he's trying to buy his family members out of slavery. Um, and he even had a small plantation himself um, and he rented some enslaved people. I need to mention this because um, sometimes people say, oh, well, he was a slave owner. In this society in which he has family members who are still enslaved, how do you get the money to buy them out of slavery? This is a slave society. Mm -hmm. So this is something that he um, this was a way for him to get money um, to try to free his family. But the important thing is that when the Haitian Revolution starts in August 1791, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. When it starts in August 1791, he ends up choosing to be on the side 
of the enslaved people and not the free people of color. So just some background for the moment. So obviously the French Revolution is starting in 1789 and we have in the colony white, um, non-wealthy people in the colony who start challenging the more wealthy people in the colony, as well as the same as in the United States, um, colonists who are challenging the metropole because they don't like the metropole controlling their commerce. So there are definitely French white colonists who are saying, why do we need to buy only things from France instead of being able to buy them from the United States, which is so close, or from British colonies? So they're upset about the colonial monopoly where you have to buy only from the mother country. And so they start fighting with each other. We start to have clashes. In the middle of this, the free people of color, like Julien Raymond, who I mentioned, and Vincent Auger, they hear that the French Revolution has declared all men are born and remain free and equal in the Declaration of the Rights of Man. And they've been mm-hmm. suffering, as I said, from these Jim Crow type laws since the 1760s that make them inferior and humiliate them compared to um, even whites who are poorer than they are. Um, Again, Julian Raymond was born to two free parents. He was born free um, and he uh, had his own plantations as people in Saint-Domingue did at this time. Um, And so he goes to Paris And he is trying to get the National Assembly to say, this applies to you. We declared uh, all men are born and remain free and equal. So this is going to invalidate all of those racial laws from Saint-Domingue from the 1760s. And what happens, unfortunately, is that the white colonists, who've also sent a delegation to Paris, they oppose it. And so you have... um, This would not have happened if the white colonists had not been trying to hold on to white supremacy. But you end up having an insurrection launched by these wealthy free people of color in Saint-Domingue in 1790. So now not only are the whites fighting against each other, but you've got free people of color fighting against other whites. Um, And with that background... It's a whole other message over there. With that background, so that... 1789 is the French Revolution, but we call it the Haitian Revolution starting in August 1791 when enslaved people rise up. And one thing I want to stress, I'm going to get to Toussaint, but I've got to do this background first before he comes in the scene, is that sometimes you have textbooks. As you said, first of all, textbooks often exclude the Haitian Revolution altogether. But as they've started to talk about them, they will say, Uh, Oh, the French Revolution happened. It proclaimed liberty, uh, fraternity, and equality. And slaves overheard this, and they decided they wanted it to. That's much too simplistic, because as I said, enslaved people had been trying to resist, even if it was brutally crushed, from the moment that they first were kidnapped. So uh, instead, what scholars like John Thornton have argued... And what we're going to get to CLR James later and how this is a little different is that you had Bosal, right? The people from Africa, they had been captured as prisoners of war. When you had different um, groups in Africa fighting against each other, um, people in West Africa were not 
giving to Europeans their own people. The, okay, <laughs> when we talk about the slave trade, this is a whole other story. But you've got African, you've got um, Europeans coming and saying, we want people, we will give you guns. Um, and if you don't agree to give us people, we're going to go, we're going to get back on our boats and go down to the next community and we're going to give them guns to give us people, right? So everyone has this pressure on them if they don't accept the deal that the Europeans will go to the next city. So anyway, the people who were given over to the Europeans were generally prisoners of war. And in the case of many of the people who ended up in Saint-Domingue, they were from the Kingdom of Congo, um, and they were skilled warriors. So they're kidnapped, they're traumatized, they don't have weapons in the New World. Resistance, when it starts, is brutally put down. But now... We're in August 1791 and whites have been fighting each other and people of color have been fighting whites and you start to have meetings, secret meetings in the northern part of Saint-Domingue where there are a lot of sugar plantations where you have veterans of wars in Africa saying this is the time. This is the time we've been waiting for when we can finally rise up and we might have a chance because right now they're not focused on us. They're fighting each other. And so you have the revolution begins in August 1791. And at first, Toussaint Louverture is not the leader. He becomes the most famous revolutionary. But this is started at first um, by a man named uh, Boukman and a Vodou priest named Cecile Fatima at this famous ceremony in August 1791 called the Bois Cayman Ceremony. Um, where people take a vow to start the revolution and it catches on with lightning speed and eventually Bukman is killed. So now the revolution passes to others and two of the leaders who emerged are named um, Jean-Francois and Biasu. And so we really hear um, about Toussaint for the first time as one of um, the aides to these men in 1791, but by 1794, he clearly is the leader of the revolution. So how does he become the leader? Like, is it good with, you know, people? How does he have a really good people skill? Is it, it's just, or is it good it's orator? A, yeah. How does he rise to power in this revolution? It, it's a good question. He gets the, he's very skillful and he's shrewd. And he ends up getting the allegiance of a lot of other soldiers who are following him. So the French, remember, even though they proclaimed liberty, equality, and fraternity in 1789, they're resisting applying it to free people of color, let alone enslaved people. And the mm. Spanish and the British, right, it's a big mess in Saint-Domingue. Sometimes I, as a historian, have to sit down with a timeline because it gets very confusing who's controlling what part of the country at which time. So the, uh, the Spanish and the British, they uh, start being at war with France after 1792. It's happening in Europe and it's happening in the Caribbean. And they figure, huh, while the enslaved people are fighting the French, we will try to capture it and then we can re-enslave them. So you've got the Spanish coming from the eastern side of the island, from Santo Domingo, and then you have the British coming um, from Jamaica 
Um, and Toussaint Louverture was very strategic. He said, okay, let me go join with the Spanish. Um, the Spanish are saying that we'll be free. I'll fight with them. But he still was a little wary. And when, after the French finally proclaim in 1794, okay, enslaved people are freed, um, and this is because they're trying to get enslaved people in Saint-Domingue to fight with them instead of the British or the Spanish, Toussaint says, okay, now I will return to your forces. Um, and the French, seeing that he has been um, successful at capturing um, land with the Spanish, they kind of tacitly recognize him. And his power continues to grow until he's recognized as the governor general um, of the island. Um, I want to talk a little bit because I want to go a little bit back because, of course, yeah, as we talked about, the French had their own revolution to worry about. And yeah. this would last until pretty much up to, until opponents we will, will get back yeah. to, of course. But how did they keep control over Saint-Domingue when Haiti when during the revolution? But did it, did it kind of, was it kind of pushed aside at the moment? Because that, and that's, of course, how they, they became successful or where they, they still managed yeah. to have somewhat control over the, the island. Yeah, by you by recruiting enslaved people to be soldiers for the French army. They're desperate, right? There are not that many white people on the island. Um, and so the first thing that happens is um, because enslaved people are freeing themselves all over the island between 1791 and 1793. Mm -hmm. The French still haven't abolished slavery. And it's it's a hot mess, to be honest. So a commissioner comes from France named Santhanox, um, a white French commissioner, and he decides, okay, I'm going to start issuing declarations. Um, people of the West, Western Saint-Domingue, if you decide to fight with us, we will recognize your freedom. You will be emancipated. And then when that doesn't work, they say, okay, people of the North, um, if you lay down your weapons and fight with us, you'll be freed. And so it's really by 1793 that Saint-Denox is like, fine, mm -hmm. if you fight with French forces anywhere in the colony, we'll declare you freed. Um, and so what happens in 1794, later in Paris, where France declares the abolition of slavery, that's really just acknowledging what enslaved people had already forced on the ground in Saint-Domingue. So that's what's happening. Just like, you know, the fact that they abolished slavery got too sad to come back, they're now relying on free Black French soldiers mm. um, to be able to fight back against the British and the Spanish. I want to do a little comparison because, of course, in, in I don't know if it's a good comparison or not because as you know in 1959 when Castro took over Cuba he used guerrilla fighting in the early uh, uh, during his revolution was it kind of like the Cuban revolution of 1959 in the early start of the Haitian revolution that kind of they started fighting guerrilla warfare in the in the well, hills I mean, yeah they, they don't have all of the weapons at first that the French have so people are fighting by any means necessary to try to free themselves, right? You have men avenging the fact that their wives or daughters have been raped serially. You have people who just do not want to be subject to torture and all of these things, and they're fighting for their lives. And uh, one thing that they had going for them was sometimes when French people came to the Caribbean, they were not 
used to the climate and they can't fight in this atmosphere um, where it's very hot or they're getting diseases. So that's certainly something that's helping them. But eventually, by the end of the revolution, Toussaint is buying arms um, from the United States. Um, unfortunately, this is something really interesting in a new article that's come out by a scholar at Berkeley named Brian DeLay. And what he found was that when the United States was, when the 13 British colonies were fighting for freedom from England, that France helped them out and got them weapons at, uh, uh, inexpensive prices. Sounds <laughs> a little anachronistic, but gave them arms or sold them cheaply. Now that the United States is independent and we're in the 1790s, they decide let's make money. They start to manufacture arms themselves. Let's make money by selling arms to these uh, revolutionaries, these insurgents in Saint-Domingue who really need them, but we're going to charge them a lot. Um, and the fact, we'll get to this later, I'm sure, but the fact that the new leaders of the revolution, Toussaint and later Dessalines, need money to buy weapons so that they can meet the French on the, the same terrain in the field. We'll, we'll talk about the effect that that's going to have. Now, you mentioned earlier that Toussaint cited Spanish first, and you mentioned also C.L.R. James, which, of course, the brilliant book that I read on the revolution. But he, he claims that, you know, Toussaint seemed always to be cited with the French. They always had this French attachment to because you know it used to be a French colony and they always had this French attachment but did, is this true that they always kind of were sentimental to, so to speak towards the French I mean this is the area that he'd grown up with rather than speaking Spanish or being Spanish but he'd also been enslaved by French people so I think Toussaint wanted whoever was going to help him to become free. Um, sometimes the idea um, that right enslaved people had these attachments to their enslavers, um, not that CLR James was saying that, but I, I think that he was strategic and would have worked with anyone. But once he came back to the French, he certainly said, if you're going to apply the Declaration of the Rights of Man to us, if you're going to abolish slavery, great, I will be free in French. And he did not necessarily envision independence. He would have been happy for Saint-Domingue to stay free and French. Um, it's only after he gets kidnapped by the French um, in 1802 and sent to die in a prison in France that other Haitians will say, we can't trust other, other uh, right, it's not Haiti yet until 1804, but other um, people involved in this revolution in Saint-Domingue will say, we can't trust the French and therefore we need to be independent. Hmm. So let's talk about the revolution and how it evolves. And uh, of course, you mentioned that white people were fighting each other. But mm -hmm. one day they realized, I mean, did they, rev did they realize that they needed to start out oh, their slave revolt? And uh, maybe we should band together and try, try to stop this. How, th how did the revolution develop? Yeah, so it's a really good question. And the scholar Michel Rolf Trouillot has argued that enslavers just could not conceive of enslaved people as men. So it was hard for them to imagine that they could carry out something on mm -hmm. this scale. 
Um, although other scholars have argued, yeah, sure, they, they knew exactly what could happen, which is why they were so brutal, uh, because they were trying to put it down. But in any case, people do things that have unintended consequences. And they're so focused on the, the white colonists, on fighting against the colonial monopoly and hoping that they can control their own commerce or fighting for white supremacy, fighting against the free people of color who are trying to get rid of the racist laws that they don't realize what an opening they are creating. So later, of course, yes, whites are going to want to band together. They are going to want to band with free people of color to say, let's reinstate the slave system, but not all free people of color wanted to do that. You have people like Toussaint Louverture who had been free, who says, no, my lot is with enslaved people. I want to help them. I don't want to help reinstate the order we had before. How would have moved among the revolutionaries where they so skeptic that maybe we just win, there's no way we're going to win this or whatever. How, what were the atmosphere among you mean among the, the revolutionaries? Yeah. Yeah. And so this is something that scholars um, look at and also debate. Were some of the leaders of the revolution, like Jean-Francois or Biesu, were they really in it to get freedom for themselves and not freedom for all enslaved people in Haiti? And so that feeds into that, right, whether they thought they could do that or not. But Toussaint was pretty clear with his message that he wanted freedom for everyone. Although, again, I know you want to talk also about what happens later um, in mm. his rule and the labor regimes that get instituted. Mm. So that's, I want to talk about as well, because as well, when Toussaint becomes successful in the revolution, mm-hmm. whether worry about the white population, that are we enslaved them? Are they going to enslave us? And are we going to be the new slaves? How was, but because we know, of course, that Toussaint never intended this way, he wanted more equality as of now, mm-hmm. and he was, of course he was a brilliant leader, but what was what's the worry among the white population at the time, when the revolution oh, the became more, okay. more successful? So the worry among the white people in, in mm. Saint-Domingue? Yeah. yeah. So given, I mean, sometimes people emphasize the violence of the Haitian revolution, but of course the, the <laughs> slave system had been so brutal And enslaved people were not going to become free by saying, please, can you free us? Um, And so the violence was needed to overcome the violence of the slave system. But even having said that, so so that certainly there were white people from Saint-Domingue who fled the island or depicted Haitian revolutionaries as a bunch of savages, because, of course, they didn't view their own violence in the same way. Um, Toussaint decides, he's very strategic, he doesn't want war with other people. He wants this to be able to be free in French, so he's going to be able to make nice with the French colonists. Um, And he's not going to punish colonists, he's going to welcome them back, he's going to work with them. Uh, In that way, right, uh, he's a little Mandela-like, right, and not wanting to be Mm. punishing the former colonizers, Um, and to move forward in a peaceful way. But of course, there are still a lot of white colonists who are conspiring with the British or with the Spanish to try to take the revolution down. And so one of the things that Toussaint Louverture is going to see that he has to do, especially after Napoleon comes on the scene, 
is that Haitians, Blacks and Dominicans, are going to need to be able to defend themselves and they're going to need arms. And to get arms, what do you need? Cash. Mm -hmm. And where can you get cash? Growing sugar and coffee. So he's going to end up instituting a kind of compulsory labor regime, but it's not to enslave people. It's for the national good. Uh, the idea is that for people to pull together, we need to do this because we need money to be able to defend ourselves. But he's going to start to have criticism um, from some other Haitians who say, well, that's very nice that someone needs to grow it. Um, you're not growing it. Why do we need to grow it? This is not why we rose up in August 1791. But I, I think that Toussaint was a realist. Um, and I think that uh, the scholarship that I admire recognizes the predicament that he was in. Instead of saying something like, oh, look, he just turned into a, you know, a, a tyrant himself. So let's talk about Toussaint's plans for, for the, when this revolution became a success. Did, did he have any plans for, for the aftermath of the revolution? Or did he kind of yeah. like, I'm just going to make that as a go along? No, yeah. So he, I mean, we know the revolution doesn't end until 1804 when mm. France, when Haiti proclaims independence. But as far as he's concerned in the 17, late 1790s, the revolution is over, right? We we won mm. independence. I'm the governor general. We're free in French now. So that could be the end of it. Um, when Napoleon comes to power, though, uh, Toussaint starts to hear about what he's doing in other places, um, that he's reinstituting slavery. And Toussaint also hears mm. that Napoleon might get rid of the idea that the law is going to be universal throughout the empire. So one thing that the French did during the revolution is they said the law is not going to be different in Nantes or Paris or Bordeaux or cap or Port-au-Prince. There's just going to be one law that's the same everywhere. Well, Napoleon comes to power and he says, nah, um, we can have different laws in different places suited to their temperament. So in 1801, to kind of preempt that, Toussaint issues a constitution that's going to be the constitution for Saint-Domingue, and it bans slavery. It says there will not be slavery here at all. So that's how he envisioned the end of the revolution, that they're going to be free and French, and that there will never be slavery again there. But Napoleon uh, didn't like this, and he saw this as a provocation. Let's talk a little bit about Napoleon. What, what was his view on Toussaint? Because it's my understanding, at least from CLR James, was that Napoleon was kind of a racist himself. He did not like... He, he wasn't... He, of course, there's a lot of admire about Napoleon, but racism was not one of them. So he did not, not like what was... Not recently, he did not like what was going on in Haiti yeah. at the time. So let's talk yeah. a little bit about Napoleon and his view on the Saint-Domingue revolution. Yeah, so Napoleon, definitely, we can look at things he said that were clearly racist. The priest that I wrote my first book about, the Abbe Gregoire, who is an abolitionist, he was someone who knew Napoleon. He becomes um, a, a count under the Napoleonic aristocracy, but he called out Napoleon to his face over this. He said, when I hear you talking about this and what you think you should be doing um, in Saint-Domingue, I could close my eyes and know that you were a bunch of white people 
because the things you're saying are just not, they're, they're very partial, they're biased. Mm -hmm. So Toussaint does not like um, that slavery has been abolished. He has a lot of friends who are former colonists who say, oh, we lost our fortune, we lost our property. And Napoleon uh, sides with them and says he's going to get uh, it back. And he wants to crush Toussaint so that he can reinstate slavery in other places. So he ends up sending an expedition to Haiti. Um, um, general Leclerc is the general who he sends. And the instructions are essentially to uh, capture Toussaint Louverture and to reinstate slavery on the island. What, what was Toussaint's view on Napoleon? How did he, because he did, it's my understanding they did try to keep relations, still keep relations. Yes. They sent several letters to Napoleon that subscribed to this. I think they did try to keep good relations with France and, you know, have support from, from France for his views. But of course, I'd like to discuss Napoleon did not have seemed to be too fond of Toussaint. So what was Toussaint's view on Napoleon? Right. Toussaint had dignity and self-respect and he knew that he was uh, an important general, right, in the French forces, the governor general also, Saint-Domingue, and he said, you're the first among whites, I'm the first among blacks, le premier des noirs. And so he's kind of envisioning a confederation um, in which, okay, you're the head of the empire, we're still part of France, but I am leading Saint-Domingue. But that was very offensive to Napoleon, who was racist, and uh, did not like this idea that this black general was suggesting that he was uh, on a parallel with Napoleon. Hmm. I also want to talk about, of course, the mentioned them briefly, but the British, of course, one of them, statement at the time, William Pitt the Younger, and there were, were talks with Pitt, I think, that they were going to invade Saint-Domain as well and become a British. Like we said, and I think we talked about this, that the white colonists wanted a British control over the island, of course, this would be disastrous for Toussaint. But let's talk yeah. a little bit about, about the British and Pitt's involvement in in this Andama uprising and how this would later affect as well the, yeah. the revolution as a whole. So they start, they, they come and they start to capture some territory in 1793 and they are able to remain in at least part of Saint-Domingue until 1798. So Saint-Fanox, who I told you was the deputy from the French, and then Toussaint Louverture need to worry about them also, um, in addition to the Spanish and the, the uh, angry Colomb. So that's one reason that Toussaint tried to make nice with white French colonists. Let us work together. You'll be safe here. I'm not going to do anything to you. And let's get rid of the British and um, restore. But yeah, there's, I mean, this was five years in which the British were occupying part of Saint-Domingue. And my colleague, David Gegis, who's now retired from the University of Florida, but is British, that's something that he's written a lot about, is about the British occupation of Saint-Domingue. Let's talk a little bit about the British occupation and how this would affect Toussaint as well, because, you know, as the British were very nice colonizers, as in they know from history. So let's talk a little bit about the British occupation and Toussaint's relations to the British. Yeah, I'll say this is not my own specialty as a scholar, is that period, but certainly the British had not abolished slavery. 
Mm. And to send this would not happen if I may. This would not happen until eighteen thirties, as we know. Right. So uh, Toussaint understands that the British and the Spanish both want to re-enslave people, and Haitians are thinking. Right. We call them Haitians now. After seventeen ninety one, we have freed ourselves and we want to be free. So that's really the main issue. But Toussaint again is strategic. Uh, triangulation <laughs> is a kind of fancy word, but we can say that's his middle name, that he's playing all of these countries off each other. The United States, England, France, Spain, it's really quad quadrangulation. Um, but yes, that's what, when you asked about one of the ways, how does he become so powerful? Because he's very shrewd and he doesn't get duped easily, except unfortunately in 1802, when he goes to a meeting with the clerk's forces and walks into a trap and gets kidnapped. Hmm. Let's talk about, because and as well, it's my understanding that because British dominion over the island is was one, one of the biggest worries of the sound, but, but I, it's my understanding that after this, I, I believe, I'm not, do forgive me, I, I don't have the best memory, that's why I'm not a historian, but uh, let, let's talk about because my understanding as well that Toussaint eventually, as the most very famous revolutionaries do, it's my understanding that he as well decided I'm going to do a military dictatorship of the island. But let's, so let's talk about how, what kind of military dictatorship is it? It's not in a modern sense, as far as I understand that we think about military dictatorship. But so let's talk about how that they become kind of a, it's, and again, yeah. it's my understanding that it, yeah, he wouldn't be using that word, but let's keep in mind, right? What is Napoleon doing? <laughs> so you've got mm -hmm. these military leaders at this time in these countries. And Napoleon has also turned his back on um, the democracy of the French Revolution. Um, you know, he's got a plebiscite <laughs> where people are, you know, saying, do you love me or do you really love me? And so it's very similar. Toussaint is in a condition even though they just kicked out the British, the British could come back at any time. The Spanish could come back at any time. Um, and he certainly doesn't want Napoleon to send troops. And so he also, as I said, he needs cash. He needs cash to buy weapons because what happens, right, when he's kidnapped, the French are trying to reimpose slavery. And he understands that. So in that sense, he's pulling the country together for the good of protecting their liberty. That's how that he would describe it. At that point, it's still a revolutionary situation. But as I mentioned earlier, the people who were the ones who were having to grow the sugar, they are not really happy. This is not how they envisioned their lives would be after mm. they became free. Um, so it's not just that, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. But people are experiencing this as um, a hierarchy, which it was. And armies are hierarchies, right? And so lower soldiers have to do what officials say. So there was, they were not able to transition to a kind of civilian society yet because they were still in a situation where they were worried about being invaded. Hmm. So that's sort of a little bit about, because it's not for very long as far as my understanding as and again, to do a little bit comparison, because it seems that most, like I said it before, it seems that most revolutionaries end up being like Simon Bolivar, Napoleon, mm -hmm. and of course, Sousa as well, and, Cast and like I said earlier, Castro. 
the national few, they all seem to become like a military dictator. So let's talk a little bit about his rule as a military dictator before his fall of grace. Which again seemed to be most military, most the case at the time. Of course, Simon Bolivar as well, he falls after becoming a dictator, and Napoleon as well, he falls. And of course, like we know, Toussaint as well will fall from power. So let's start. That seems to be kind of a common theme in this era. But let's talk about a little bit about Screw first before we talk about the Yeah, well, I mean, the general pattern is when you have a revolution, it's very hard for it to be successful. In the first place, it's hard to overthrow an old regime. And once you do, which is still beating the odds, that old regime, the whole point is that it was powerful and it was wealthy and it wants to return. So in the United States, of course, where we had George Washington controlling things, the British aren't finished with their former colonies. We have the War of 1812. They're still itching to get control again over these upstarts. Um, and there's certainly, I'm not a Spanish historian, but there are people in Spain who wish that they could recapture new Spain that's become independent. So Toussaint is in the same situation. It's unfortunately a problem. And we see that in the modern period, um, in African and other societies, after you overthrow the Europeans, they still want to control your economy. Um, so how do you pull your people together? And you have these military leaders who say, only I can do it. I'm the one who needs to do it. You guys are going to mess it up. Mm. And so they end up um, running things in that kind of strict way. The United States is very unusual in that you did have a transition to civilian society. Mm. But of course... I, I got to ask, of course, as you know, what I'm yeah. talking about. Do you think that if, let's say, Washington would have become a military dictator... Do you think it would have had the same fate as other revolutionaries like Napoleon Toussaint and Bolivar as well? Who is the first person you said? Um, do you think that if Washington would have become like... Washington, the, yeah. Not a military dictator, do you think he would have fallen from power as well like the other revolutionaries of the time? Or do you think he would have been that's a, able that's to a good question, yeah. So one of the things about Washington that's unique is he said, he didn't say only I can do it. He said, mm. I'm finished. I'm turning it over to other people. Mm. Um, so that that is that was unique. But yeah, I don't know what would have happened if he had tried to stay in power. Mm. One but let's go back to, to then, yeah, I just want just on the derailing there, but I, let's go back to Toussaint in power and how he fell from that power as we, as we know and so, sorry, what were you asking there about? No, no, I'm sorry for derailing a little bit, but let's no, no, go no. back to Toussaint and how his brief stay in power and how he would be later kidnapped by the French and sent to a French prison eventually. Yeah, so he he's leading um, people in, in Saint-Domingue by 1801 <clears throat> when Leclerc's forces come. And there's definitely division among the what we call the Haitian revolutionaries by then. There are other leaders who say he's being too dictatorial. He's controlling things so much. Um, famously, he has like an adopted nephew named Moise. And Moise says, look, you're being too harsh on other people in the military. You need to stop it. And Toussaint has him killed. Um, so you definitely have this kind of infighting going on. Um, among the leaders about what is the best way to protect us and to keep our liberty safe. 
Um, and you have that background when Leclerc's forces come. And you've got some of these generals, the black French generals in Saint-Domingue, who say, now, we, we don't think the French are going to do anything to us, right? We're patriotic now. They abolished mm -hmm. slavery seven years ago. You know, why would we mutiny, right? Otherwise, they're supposed to support Leclerc, who is another French general. Um, and Toussaint is not necessarily opposed. But again, um, he starts hearing rumors that um, Napoleon is wanting to reinstate slavery. Um, and it's certainly something that happened um, in Guadeloupe. And the news makes its way to Saint-Domingue. So Toussaint is very wary and he wants to make clear that Saint-Domingans are going to maintain their independence. And then he gets kidnapped um, in 1802. So at that point, um, he makes a famous declaration that um, in cutting me down, you are uh, only cutting the kind of... Tr uh, trunk or the branches of the tree of liberty but not its roots and it will continue to grow after me and there are others like Desalines and Henri Christophe um, and General Capuella Moore who take up the charge afterwards and really once it becomes clear they fight against Leclerc and then Rochambeau was a really brutal general and at this point Leclerc's forces they're really committed to genocide Sometimes people say this about Desalines, um, but in fact, it's the French. They basically say these, um, they use racist words, they don't say black, but these people here are um, rotten. We're never going to be able to control them again. So what we need to do is wipe them out, and then we can import new people from Africa who we can be enslaved. So they're really fighting a kind of war of genocide against Haitians. And luckily for the Haitians, they're able to resist this. Um, and they defeat the French in November 1803 um, at the Battle of Vertier in northern Haiti. And then in January of 1804, um, on January 1st, Desalines declares independence. But you can imagine, of course, as I, and as I said before, that other countries are not happy that Haiti has become independent and they want to try to stop its success. Hmm. So let's talk about this. How did it try to stop the success of Haiti? Because of mm. course, I it's just early on, there have been other, because we discussed that there were worries that there would be other slave revolts that we see on yeah. Cuba, where they were inspired by Toussaint's slave revolt as well. But they, again, they failed. And of course, we see in the United States as well, I believe there has been slave revolts with the famous Black Spartacus as well, movement as well. But well, then let's talk about how they tried to stop the influence of Cuba from spreading and how would it, how this would be the influence of the Haitian Revolution. So one thing is that they refuse to recognize Haiti. All of the other countries do not recognize Haiti diplomatically. Um, and the only way that Haiti was able to get diplomatic recognition from France 20 years later in 1825 was by agreeing to pay reparations. Now, this is crazy because when we think about, say, the Holocaust, Germans had to pay reparations to survivors of the Holocaust or their descendants for what they had done to them. But in the case of Haiti, the French said, you need to pay us back for the property you stole, which means the land and yourselves because you are a property. So Haitians 
end up committing themselves to paying 150 million francs, which is a huge sum, especially with all of the interest that it earned over time. Um, and that is one of the things that has made Haiti so poor is that the interest on this kept getting bigger, but the leader at the time, um, who was uh, Jean-Pierre Boyer, made this calculation that this was something that would um, make things better for him, make things better for Haiti, if they were no longer seen as an international pariah state. When you think about like Libya and Muammar Gaddafi, that's the example that I like to use with my students, they're seen as an outlaw nation. Now, there was some clandestine trade, the U.S. is still uh, on the down low, as we say, trading with them, but they're really cut off. Um, Thomas Jefferson, when he mm -hmm. was president, had a blockade of Haiti, and the French are also threatening to send back military flotillas to try to recapture the island. Um, mm -hmm. So that was definitely one way. And throughout the 19th century in the United States, because remember, slavery is not abolished in the United States until 1865. So you had Southerners in Congress um, who were saying, we need to go and reinvade that state. We need to go, you know, and reinvade those ends. They use that terrible word um, because it's dangerous to have them so nearby. So, and, and the United States ends up invading Haiti in 1915 mm -hmm. and occupying it for 20 years because by this time the Citibank in New York City was one of the holders of the debt that the Haitians had um, contracted in 1825. So mm. all of I'm sorry for this interrupting yeah. you again, but I, I want to talk a little bit about that as well. I was going to bring you up, and thank you for doing that, because I wanted to talk about, because as I mentioned, the arm purchase from the United States. What was the debt that they built up because of the revolution and, and that they still owed the United States? As you mentioned, they still been repaid in 1915 but let's talk so let's talk a little bit about that that the haitian had rebuilt built up by purchasing the arms from the united states yeah th that i think there's not enough research on that yet i don't know if i, I think people were not i think Toussaint de saline were not borrowing to do those i would have to check um, but that's not what the debt is from. They're having to pay a lot. And that's why Toussaint needs people growing sugar and coffee. And I think that they're paying in cash then for that. It's the debt from 1825 when they agreed mm -hmm. to pay reparations for themselves that then, because they don't have that money, is going to keep growing in interest. And throughout the 19th century, even as Haiti is trying to be an independent country, even as it's trying to export products still like sugar and coffee, into the 1880s and 1890s, a, a big percentage of the, the the nation's budget each year has to go to debt service. So let's talk about the capture of the sun because it doesn't stay on in power for very long. So, but the French, like you said earlier, again, you said earlier that he was captured by the French and he was brought to a French prison. Person. So let's talk a little bit about the capture of the sun, the end, his end, and. Yeah, well, he thought that he was going to a negotiation and he ends up walking into a trap. Um, and so he's deported to France and he's placed in this horrible, isolated, freezing cold prison in the mountains in the Jura region of France. And he ends up dying there in 1803. 
So it's just a terrible end. And I'll tell you that some Haitians now have been struck by what is a kind of a hypocritical French embrace of Toussaint now. Now that the French in the 21st century are trying to show that they're progressive, they're not racist, they say, oh, look at this black French general, Toussaint Louverture, and his remains were transferred or symbolically to the Pantheon in Paris. And they say, oh, now they want to call him a French general. When then they kidnap him, they leave him to die, and he doesn't have any kind of trial or anything like that. So it was a very um, horrible end for someone mm -hmm. who would have been willing to serve France and to stay part of France. What what would you say is the legacy and how is Toussaint remembered? I mean, we talked a little bit about the remains of Toussaint, but what is, how is he remembered today in Haiti and what is his legacy as a whole to the island? So every school child in Haiti has to learn his speech about the tree that the roots um, will continue to grow, the roots of liberty. So he is definitely viewed as a father of the nation, Although Desalines has an even more important place because he's the one who declared independence. Um, but Haitians are very proud of their revolution. And what has happened afterwards is very sad for Haitians. So Haitians are often talking about the promise of 1804, the promise of the revolution, had they been prevented from enjoying their freedom or having real sovereignty. But yeah, he's definitely remembered as a hero today. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about, of course, you mentioned him earlier, and that is C.L.R. James, and you mentioned that he's British by now, 86 years mm -hmm. old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to do a comparison, Barbara Tuckman wrote the Johnson Orgies in the 1960s, but today it's not been referenced in modern scholars' work on 1914. But but how is C.L.R. James' work being, being viewed by scholars, and how is it still being referenced by strollers today and his work on the Sandman and Tosas as well. How how is his work being remembered? Uh, because it, I, I would highly recommend this was the first book that I read on the revolution, but yeah, and it's brilliant written. But how is it remembered among strollers today? And how is his work? How has his work aged for the twenty first century? Sure. Well, this is actually a topic I've written about. Um, some of your listeners can look up because I have it in open access, an article um, about the legacy of the Black Jacobins I published in the Journal of Haitian Studies. But I can tell you a little about this. So first of all, as you said with Barbara Tuckman, normally books of history <laughs> don't have that long a shelf life because historians are always finding new things and historians rely on the work of older scholars So scholars are usually reading the most <laughs> recent 20 years of scholarship. The thing is about the Haitian Revolution, there are two reasons why CLR James has been different in that respect. And I guess I first should say he is different in that respect. This is still um, perhaps the most famous book on the Haitian Revolution. It's still regarded as a classic. It still gets taught in universities. It's still on syllabi, and he's still a towering figure. So why is this different? First, as you said, the Haitian Revolution was long hidden and silenced for a long time. And so James wrote this book in the 30s, and there was not a lot of other scholarship, especially that was so vibrant and readable afterwards. So a lot of people, if they wanted to learn about the Haitian Revolution, 
they were discovering it by reading James. I see, uh, I see that, especially by Rice Girls, not all works from that era. And this goes to mention one of them, really in Shire on the Third Reich mm -hmm. as well. It's one book that, that hasn't necessarily aged well because mm -hmm. certain things he write about in the 60s has not aged well for the 21st century. But mm -hmm. so it's really exceptional how Sylar James yes, still definitely. is right, yes. kind of like Gibbon in a way, to, to, to a comparison, his work mm -hmm. is uh, still relevant to the 21st century. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add there are a few other things about the book that are still very timely. Um, there are still white scholars today who dismiss the significance of the Haitian Revolution. And James brilliantly articulated why this was such an important revolution in world history. Um, mm -hmm. He also stressed that this was an important part of the French Revolution. Um, this story was part of that dynamic. And another thing he did that was very important was he emphasized the violence of the colonists. Because often the violence of the Haitian revolutionaries gets emphasized, but C.L.R. James really made sure to emphasize what people had been responding to. And he also compared it to things in the present in the 20th century about other anti-colonial struggles, and he made it relevant. So those are just some of the reasons and the lively reading that the book has remained very important, even if, of course, after 86 years, there are ways that scholars look at the revolution. And when I say scholars, I mean specialists on the Haitian revolution look at it uh, slightly differently than he did. Mm. And I want to talk a little bit about other slave revolts as well, because you mentioned in the beginning of this episode, this is the only, and that's what makes this, I think, so incredible story that this is the only successful revolution against slavery. So why did the other, like you said, we had a spark just within, in the United States and the one in Cuba that failed, but that was inspired by the revolution in Haiti. But why did all these other revolutions fail to the uprising against slavery and the oppression? So why were there no other revolutions? Why is this such a unique part of history I in that sense. The, yeah, the power imbalance. So enslavers have weapons um, and you're also dealing with traumatized people. But yeah, it, it was kind of the certainty that enslaved people have that if I rise up, I'm going to be killed. Also prevented more people from taking parts in them. But you look at the Nat Turner insurrection, things that were almost successful in the end, they end up getting brutally squashed. So it's thanks to the, the savviness of people like Toussaint that the Haitian Revolution wasn't defeated after initially seeming successful. So I wanted to talk a little bit about as well the aftermath after Toussaint as a mm -hmm. capture of Haiti. We mentioned that the incredible deaths that they built up in 1825, but let's talk a little bit about the aftermath before we run up this episode about Haiti and how the how the aftermath after 1803 4 when they declare mm -hmm. independence. So let's talk a little bit about what happened after yes. as well. So one thing, unfortunately, that happens, and this is something that we see in other places too after a revolution or a declaration of independence, you now have these military men who are all pumped up and uh, used to violence and used to their success, who should be the one who takes over? 
And because it's always a good idea to have a military in charge. Yeah. Right. In this case, you need a military to overcome the other military. But then again, mm-hmm. the transition away from military is often hard. And so there's there's agreement at first that it should be Desalines. But Desalines has the same situation as Toussaint. Um, there's a wonderful new movie about Desalines made by the Haitian filmmaker Arnold Antonin. Uh, A-N-T-O-N-I-N. People can find it on Antonin's website. Um, you can order the film. And it looks at the fact that Desalines was in the same situation as Toussaint. Now you're independent, but you still need money for weapons in order to make sure that you're not reconquered. And so he also needed people to be growing sugar and coffee. Um, and he's also trying to keep military discipline. So he ends up actually getting assassinated in 1806. And then there starts to be much more fighting among Haitians about who should rule the country. And the country gets divided um, into two and three different parts. And in the end, you have uh, in the north of Haiti, Henri Christophe is um, leading the country. And in the south, you have a republic that's led by uh, Alexandre Pétion when he dies, Jean-Pierre Boyer. Um, and then they're fighting with each other also um, until finally Jean-Pierre uh, Boyer unites the country Um I'm going to say, I think in 1821, as a historian, the the, uh, twists and turns are so much that sometimes I have to double check a date myself. Mm -hmm. And then Boye Mm -hmm. is leading over Haiti until the mid 1840s. He does. Sorry, I'm just going to interrupt you because I don't read the post the podcast real quick and I'll be right back. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'll be right back. Yeah, and so then I'll, I'll. There you go. Okay, we're back. Sorry about the delay, but yes, thank you so much for being patient. No problem. And yeah, I only have a few more minutes of, of things to yes, say about that's fine. Yeah. And then my book, Haitian History, New Perspectives, goes into more details. But um, uh, Boye ends up conquering the whole island, including the east, in uh, what was then Santo Domenico and is now the Dominican Republic, and brings the abolition of slavery there also. Um Uh, But, again, Haitians continued to have to pay this debt to the French, and that's something that is going to continue to be a problem for Haitians into the 20th century. Um, And when the international banks start getting worried that Haitians might spend money on their own country and their own needs instead of sending so much to the debt, um, the United States is going to invade in 1915 to... Uh, first seize money from the Haitian treasury, and then the United States doesn't leave. It stays for another 20 years, um, exploiting people and forcing them into labor. So, um, yeah, that's just a brief snapshot of how things were not uh, magic and sunny and wonderful after 1804. One last question. Let's talk a little bit about Haiti today and how in the 21st century is it still affected from like we said about the United States takeover and how is the poverty, the poverty that is, yes. and a constant earthquake that seems to be happening in Haiti. Let's talk a little bit about Haiti. Is there still if the effect of the 18th and 19th century in Haiti today? Yeah. So, yeah, if I can leave your listeners with one thing, it's that unfortunately, Haitians are still prevented from exercising sovereignty um, over themselves. After the U.S. left in 1934, 
The understanding was basically, we will stay out of your country. We will not occupy your country as long as your leaders are doing things that we like and that we want them to do. And so the typical American policy, in other words, unfortunately. And so currently right now, fast forwarding to 2024, Haitians had been protesting against this political party that the U.S. essentially and other countries, not only the U.S., imposed on them after the earthquake. This uh, political party called the PHTK, um, which was led by um, the Haitian singer Michel Martelly, was viewed by the international community as uh, a party that would be friendly to international businesses. And when I say that, keep in mind that because of the closeness of Haiti to the United States, Haiti is not that far from Florida, American companies and other companies have viewed it as a great place for sweatshops, pay workers almost nothing, and then the transportation costs to bring the goods to the United States are next to nothing. So when Haitian leaders have tried to raise the minimum wage for people so that it's not $5 a day for working in a factory, the United States um, has opposed it. The embassy has sent messages. So uh, President Jean-Bertrand Aristide, who was trying to have a different policy for Haiti in the 1990s and the 2000s. Again, we would be here for another two hours if we Mm. talked about him and I need uh, to go help students. But uh, the United States has made clear its its, um, uh, uh, disaffection with policies that help Haitians more than help the international business community. So this party was put into power in 2012 um, and 2013 by the international community. Haitians have been trying to have free elections to get rid of them. But meanwhile, at this point, it's a military system um, where the United States sends arms to this unelected party. And then it has gangs that help keep it in power. And there were big Haitian protests in 2018 and 2021. But after that, the gangs that are affiliated with this government, which is supported by the U.S. Embassy, but not by the people, um, have been terrorizing people. Um, so we'll we'll see what happens. February 7th is an important day. In and you cross it will be better. Fingers crossed, yes. So thank you. I, I, mean, I mean, personally, I have a whole lot of issues with United States foreign policy and their influence, but that, I'm trying to stay neutral in this podcast, and that is a whole other well, as an American, in as itself. an American <laughs> So it, that's a whole other episode. I will discuss that, that later, but I think we're going to round it up there. Thank you so much for coming on. Of course, before you go, do you have any social media you want to share or where can people buy your books if they, or if they have any questions about the Haitian oh, yeah, revolution? People, where can people if, find you? If people um, are looking for my books, they can get them on Amazon or the website University of Mississippi, University Press of Mississippi for Slavery Revolt on Screen or University of California Press for my Abbe Greg Warrior book. Um, and I am on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Seppenwald. Thank you again. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. This has been about that age 12. We are available on social media, on Twitter, slash X, or whatever it's called these days, and about that age 12. You can find us on, on, we are on Instagram and we're that age as well. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube. If you're on Spotify, consider giving us five stars. You can give us one if you hated this episode, which I hope you didn't. 
Uh, but you, you will prepare five star because it's a free travel world of some places, so you can cross the how many stars you want. Or if you are on Apple Podcast, it will be great if you could write a review. And if I see it, I will try to read it on this podcast. If you are on YouTube, to like, share, and subscribe. My name is Alan. This has been with that age well, and I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.